to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the 1963 film, Diamond Head. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me again on this episode. We're now up to 1963, and John Williams had two very different film assignments on his plate this year. The first was a serious drama addressing racial bigotry, while the second was just a bubbly romp with a much-loved teenager. We'll talk about the first one in this episode, and it's called Diamond Head. This was based on a book that was published just three years earlier, which is quite fast for turning around a book into a movie. Charlton Heston was the big star, his fourth film since winning the Oscar for lead actor in Ben-Hur. Heston played Richard King Howland, a bigoted landowner in Hawaii. This character is the exact opposite from what you would expect Heston to play, which is probably what attracted him to the role. But still, it's hard to get over the fact that someone who played Moses and Judah Ben-Hur would play a man who doesn't want his white sister to marry a full-blooded Hawaiian yet carries on an affair with a Chinese woman. I suppose I should have said spoiler alert before telling you all that, but by now I hope you knew I would be talking about the plot of the movie. The first half of the film deals with that mixed-race marriage proposal between King's much younger sister Sloane and a Hawaiian man named Paul. In the middle of all this is a potential run as senator for the new state of Hawaii for King, which he is sure to win based on his power and influence. Mei Chen, the woman King is seeing in secret, is pregnant with King's child. Of course, King does not take kindly to the thought of having a half-white, half-Asian son, so he plans to care for the child financially, but not emotionally. The child would be the heir to the Howland Empire, and King would not let that happen, just as he knows that Paul could be the heir of his empire if he married Sloane. It all sounds very soap opera-ish, doesn't it? It's pretty heavy stuff, and it gets a bit heavier when King stabs Paul in a knife fight. Was it a convenient accident or done on purpose? Again, King's influence gets the charges dropped, but the scandal means he won't run for senator. Maid dies in childbirth, and Sloane offers to raise the child since her brother won't do it. Oh yeah, now Sloane has fallen in love with Paul's brother, and that makes King even madder. In the end, he realizes that he has two choices, live alone with his money or live with the small family he has in the world, plus his money. He chooses the latter, thankfully. I was afraid our main character was going to go through his entire life as a bigot, which does happen in real life, unfortunately. But that's not why we go to the movies, is it? And it certainly isn't what we would expect from a Charlton Heston character. One of the big controversies about the film is hiring white people to play Hawaiian characters. James Darren, who had a bit part in Because They're Young three years earlier, plays Paul, a full-blooded Hawaiian man. And James Darren has 0% Hawaiian blood in him. George Takiris, the child of Greek parents, who played the Puerto Rican Bernardo in the West Side Story movie, is half white, half Hawaiian here. The casting isn't nearly as bad as Mickey Rooney playing a cartoonish Japanese man in Breakfast at Tiffany's, but it bears mentioning because there certainly could have been adequate Hawaiian actors available to the casting director. 
In terms of film quality, it's much more engaging than Bachelor Flat and tons more interesting than The Secret Ways. Some of the scenes are shot on location in Hawaii and they are stunning. But it's still nowhere near the popular film that is going to give John Williams the notice I think he is ready to earn at this time. What's worse is that he has to play second fiddle to someone else's music. The main theme to Diamond Head was written by Hugo Winterhalter. Yeah, I didn't know who Hugo Winterhalter was either, but he gets screen credit for writing the theme, though Williams does get the music by credit. I'm not sure what came first, Winterhalter writing the theme for the film and Williams filling in the gaps, or Williams getting hired, then Winterhalter walking over him to contribute this theme music. Winterhalter was not a film composer by trade. He was mostly an arranger and conductor and composed very little music. How and why he managed to be involved with the film is not really known. In any case, Winterhalter's theme is nice, and Williams does well in adapting it throughout this very sparse score. How sparse? I think there's barely 15 minutes of it, if you don't include the Hawaiian music played in one scene. So, here's a listen to that Diamond Head theme by Hugo Winterhalter as played in the opening credits. About 15 minutes later, Sloan meets up with Paul on the beach. Winterhaven's theme comes around briefly, and John Williams colors around it with some strings. After a bit of Winterhalter's theme, John Williams introduces a new theme of his own, a delicate piece of music for Sloan. <sighs> Forty minutes later, after King kills Paul, King finds solace in Mei Chen's arms. 
This would have been a nice opportunity to create a quasi-love theme for King and May, but instead this is just music to a dialogue-free scene. And it doesn't really matter because most of the subsequent scenes featuring May and King together are not scored with music. After passing out at a bar, Sloane wakes up in Paul's bed, put there by Paul's brother Dean. When Sloane goes back to sleep, she has a very surreal dream in which she imagines a moment mentioned earlier in the film in which she teased Dean when she was younger to join her skidding dipping in a lake. Paul takes over for Dean in the dream, and Sloane kisses Paul. Then it cuts abruptly to an insinuation that she has also kissed King in the dream. Yes, this 1962 movie went so far as to imply incest. Here's the music after she realizes she has kissed her brother in the dream. The music is quite ethereal. It sounds like there was a bit of extra work in the studio mix to make it sound more dreamy, and it works well. So after Sloane wakes up from the dream and Dean comforts her, Williams brings back Sloane's theme as she seduces Dean to sleep with her. Ever since the beginning of the film, Sloane and King have been at odds. They try to hash things out near the end of the film, talking about the importance of family. Sloane wants to break from the Howland family line and remarks at the beauty of the island and how their massive piece of land separates them from much of human interaction. Later, she takes a walk on the beach to think things over. Think about what? I don't know. The meaning of life, the rising price of sugarcane, whether she'll run into Burt Lancaster and Deborah Carr making out on the beach. In any case, she thinks as her theme plays along.
Once Sloane demands that she is going to marry Dean and possibly take King's bastard child with her, King takes off in anger on his horse. Here's the first scene for John Williams to really get the orchestra going, even though he has to sprinkle in the Diamond Head theme. King gets off his horse later and surveys his land. There are no people in view and he begins to understand that he might end up alone. King goes back to his house and decides to bring his son back home. The Diamond Head theme gets a triumphant treatment here by John Williams to close out the film. For the second time in a row, John Williams' music gets a commercial release. Unfortunately, the Diamond Head soundtrack doesn't feature the music as played in the film, but rather a studio re-recording of many cues, including a song version of the Diamond Head theme sung by James Darren. That's enough of that. It's actually a decent song, but this is not the James Darren podcast. There's still one question I have about the music for this film. Now, did Hugo Winterhalter provide any guidance to John Williams, who was 23 years younger than Winterhalter and still learning the film scoring business? 
If not, John Williams was very generous with the amount of instances that used Winterhalter's theme. And perhaps the director, Guy Green, was the guiding hand for Williams in terms of how much of Winterhalter's theme to use. Or perhaps there was a contract that required that the music show up in a certain percentage of the score. The tables will be turned for John Williams exactly 20 years later when his original themes for Jaws and Superman would be integrated into the scores of the third installments of those films written by other composers. And it would happen later for Williams again with the Jurassic Park and Harry Potter franchises. And then Williams will write a brief theme for the 2018 Han Solo movie for John Powell to work with. So with Diamond Head doing so-so business in movie theaters, John Williams did a complete 180-degree turn and took on a project that would return him to the teenage demographic. We'll discuss that film on the next episode. As always, I invite you to contribute to the conversation of the Baton Podcast. You can always submit a comment on the podcast's webpage or send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com. I might just read your comments on a future show. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. Until next time, the baton is down.